recording was from the Dies Irae, which is one of the great Gregorian uh, themes employed in Catholic music across the board. Um, this is used especially in the funeral mass. Uh, the, this is the requiem or the mass for the dead. Um, you'll notice, like a lot of medieval music, the Dies Irae specifically avoids a lot of musical accompaniment. It is entirely vocal. Um, the chanting is the through line of the song, and the words are the sole artistic element here. Um, the text, the actual lyrics, the telling of the, the trials of Judgment Day and the coming of destruction upon the earth, this is the primary and sole focus. Much medieval art and literature and music has this sort of key focus, zeroes in directly on the religious elements at stake here, rather than sort of confounding it with complexity or focusing on the like human artifice of the project. Um, like most medieval thinking, it is solely God-focused, um, and this is a priority as far as the medievals are concerned. Um, we won't get a lot of chance to talk about sort of the development of medieval art here, but I thought that it was important to sort of give you a taste of what it looks like before the Renaissance really shakes things up. Um, there are a lot of chants, a lot of songs of this kind. This one itself is sort of ambiguously old. Um, the first manuscript we have dates back to the 13th century. We believe that it was composed in the 13th century, but some traditions hold that it was composed by as early as, like, St. Gregory, one of the very early popes in the 7th and 8th century. Um, but it is important to notice that the tradition is as important I mean, as the, the actual, like, art here. Um, this is Catholic through and through. This is meant to be sort of the background or even the device to encourage worship. Um, it is not something to be appreciated for itself, which is something that it will be very different as we move forward in this class and see other sort of musical themes and approaches coming to the fore. All right, I hope you're prepared because we got a lot of stuff to cover in a real short time. Um, before we can get into the Renaissance and the whole modern business of 1500 and beyond in this class, we really need to discuss what's going on in history beforehand. And we absolutely have to discuss the deal with Christianity, because we're going to be dealing with this a lot in here. Um, virtually all of the writers that we are going to read in this class are some variety of Christian or some kind of reaction to or against Christianity. Um, and in order to understand everything that's so new about the Renaissance, as well as the things that are so old about the Renaissance, we have to talk about what the deal is with medieval philosophy and the medieval worldview altogether. Um, fortunately, Dante kind of lends himself to that. The great thing about Dante is that he has very much got a foot in both the medieval perspective and the Renaissance perspective. He doesn't 
quite belong exclusively to either, um, and in part belongs to both, um, which makes him a great way to sort of talk about this bridge, this change from the medieval perspective and the ancient perspective before that to the new Renaissance perspective, and it's both backward and forward-looking elements. Um, but before we can even get into Dante, we have to talk about Christianity. Like, I can't emphasize enough how much we're going to be coming back to this particular well. Um, and I find that my students are, on the whole, not terribly well informed about Christianity. Um, like, as much as everybody sort of begrudgingly acknowledges Christianity's dominance as the primary religion in the United States and sort of its, like, significant hold over the West, um, these days it's misunderstood at best and sort of wildly like not known at worst um so rather than sort of dive in and just assume that you know a substantial amount about christianity or at least enough to get by i, I want to sort of set some ground assumptions about what we're dealing with um because in order to properly understand exactly what's going on what's moving the culture forward you kind of have to understand exactly what is changing about Christianity itself in this period of time, because Christianity does change radically um, over the 500 years that we're looking at in this class. Um, so let's start by talking about the basics. Um, throughout the medieval period, at least in Europe, in, in the West, so to speak, um, like from, let's say, the fall of the Roman Empire and call it five to 600 AD or so, um, to the period that we're looking at with Dante and around the 14th century, um, Christianity was the dominant religious force and even the dominant political force in many ways. Um, Christianity ran the show. Like, everybody in Europe, with the exception of the Moors in Spain and some of the groups in the farther east and some of the pagans that are still hanging around the periphery um christianity is it like france italy germany it's the single most powerful religion um and it calls the shots uh to the point that a lot of the medieval world like when the pope said you know you are excommunicated that was a huge political thing as well as a huge religious thing um, emperors stood and fell at the pope's discretion in many cases um, the first holy roman emperor altogether the the emperor charlemagne who very much like started making medieval europe into the the perspective the way that we see it now who basically like invented france and germany um and even england to some degree he was decided by the pope at that point like the pope wielded a great deal of economic and political influence um and people believe this like i know that this is kind of a weird thing to think about now but you know we're talking about a time in this medieval worldview where dante comes from where literally everyone around you believes in Christianity and not just believes it, but like all the way believes it. It is not just going to church on Sundays. Like these people believe that the Pope, that the clergy, that God held their lives in their hands. Um, and as a consequence, you know, whether or not they fought and toiled or lived and died, was of virtually no consequence as long as their salvation was assured, as long as they were baptized, as long as they didn't perform any mortal sins. You know, people took this stuff really, really seriously. 
Um, the Crusades, for example, like tons of people were given these plenary indulgences. The Pope said, you know, go fight in the Holy Land and you will be forgiven of all your sins. And these people like literally just picked up and left. Um, like all of these nobles with nothing to lose, all of these people who had done bad things in their past, like they all just picked up, believed what the Pope had to say and fought and died for this idea. Sometimes it seemed utterly pointless otherwise. Some of the Crusades were completely cockamamie jobs of, you know, half-witted nonsense. And yet people were willing to do what the Pope said. They trusted the, the Pope as the representative of God on earth. Um, so we have to talk about Christianity. Um, we have to set the record straight. This is the most powerful force politically, religiously, economically, or otherwise um, up until this point in history, we gotta talk about what it involves so we understand what people are saying about it. Um, so, in short, it's time for me to do the gospel. Um, what is the deal with Christianity? Um, in many of my classes, I make a whole lecture out of this. We definitely do not have time for that, unfortunately. So if we have any questions about the Bible, feel free to shoot them my way. I'll be happy to answer them as much as I can. Um, again, I want everybody to be on the same page as much as possible. And I know that this is some heavy stuff that a lot of people have questions about. Um, but the high points, the stuff that you really need to know going forward is that Christianity has sort of like a three-part structure to the gospel. Um, first and foremost, you have to understand that the Christian worldview sees everybody as sinners. No exceptions. It's not like Christians are good people and everybody else is bad people. That's not the way it works, or at least it's not the way it's supposed to work. As much as it's been butchered in this country, who knows what it's supposed, what it looks like now. Um, but the original idea of the gospel, the gospel that the you know, clergy were teaching and the peasants believed throughout the medieval period was that people were sinful. They were damned. Like the default state of human beings is damnation. Like they have done bad things, things that offended God, um, and they are going to die in sin and be eternally tormented and punished in hell um, without divine intervention. Um, this obviously goes back to that whole story of Adam and Eve, which I imagine many of you are roughly familiar with. Um, originally, God made the world and the world was good, but then Adam and Eve ate the apple from the tree, possibly under the influence of Satan. And as a result, everything is now bad. That is the fall story. Um, there was grace and then we fell from grace. Humans are responsible for their own sin. Now, under Catholic theology passed down through both, you know, Jewish theology before that and through medieval theology by way of Augustine, um, the assumption here is that sin is passed down automatically. When you were born, you are born sinful in a sinful world. This is the doctrine of original sin. Um, so as much as there is this idea that like babies are exempt because they're innocent, they haven't yet sinned, real mainline orthodox catholic doctrine especially in dante's day as ambiguous as it might have been on that subject would have generally assumed that no everybody inherits sin like at the moment of birth you are sinful um and if you die unbaptized you go to hell because you were sinful maybe you didn't sin personally but you inherited the sins of your fathers you were born into a sinful world 
it's fairly mean, and we could definitely go into advanced theological discussions about this, but that's the way that these people saw it. Um, so you'll notice when Dante is talking about limbo, you don't see a whole heck of a lot of babies running around. That's because limbo is reserved for something else in Dante's perspective. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, suffice it to say that the basic tenet of, you know, the first of our three major tenets of the gospel is that everybody is sinful and there's no way around that. Um, like we are born into this world sinful, we will commit sin if left to our own devices, even those who are saved and baptized, while they have the choice not to sin, they also will generally sin. Like this is very Augustinian, but again, that's very much the dominant force in Christian theology at this point. Um, Aquinas is just becoming ascendant at the time that Dante is writing. He'll be a much bigger deal by the time of the Renaissance, but he will also be thoroughly overturned in the Renaissance. So there, there you are. The second tenet that we have to understand is that God is just. Like this, the way that the Christians understand God, there is only one God for one thing. Like there's not a whole bunch of pantheon running around. You don't have like Zeus and Athena or various, you know, deities hanging around confusing things. Um, there are heretical sects of Christianity that believe in multiple gods, but they are heretical. Everybody hates them and nobody takes them seriously. So every time that one of those pop up, like there was a rash of Albigensianism shortly before Dante was writing and it was thoroughly put down. The Catholic Church won't tolerate that crap. So you kill everybody and call it a day. Um, at the very least, you excommunicate them and they go far, far away and then they never bother anyone again. That's the idea. Um, but... Again, mainline Christianity insists that there is one God and that that God is perfect. Not just good, not just generally good, not changing minds, but perfect. He is eternally one God, eternally perfect, eternally just as part of his perfection. And that's where things get tricky. Because again, humans are not perfect. They are imperfect. They are unjust. They do bad things. They are sinful, as we just said. And because of the fact that they are sinful, God in his perfection, God in his eternal, infinite justice, cannot have truck with human beings. They are irrevocably divided. By falling from grace, humans fell from God's favor as well. And that cannot be fixed by humans. No human can make themselves perfect. This is another important tenet of Augustinian philosophy, very dominant in Dante's time. Um, humans are fallen. God is perfect. Humans cannot get to God by overcoming their fallibility. That's not the way it works. Their sin is so relentless, so critical to who they are, that they ultimately are just lost. Only God, from the higher position, can save them. They cannot be saved bottom up. They cannot save themselves. They have to be saved by God from outside, which of course is Jesus. Um, according to the New Testament, Jesus was born sinless. He is the one exception to the original sin rule, although the Catholics will later argue that Mary is also sinless, but you know, we don't need to talk about the Immaculate Conception right now. Um, We'll get to that later because Goethe will talk about that and so will quite a few others. Um, Jesus is sinless. He is therefore completely exempt from the original sin business. What's more, Jesus is God. 
This is something that the New Testament is pretty unambiguous about, although there are, again, many heretical sects, notably uh, Jehovah's Witnesses these days, um, who disagree and think that Jesus is, like, not actually God, but, like, just the Son of God or, like, God-light or something. Um, at any rate, for our purposes, again, Orthodox Christianity insists Jesus is God. He is perfect, like God. He is sinless, like God. Um, he is also human. And there is no way that we are going to have time to explain the whole weird doctrine of the Trinity here. Like, I have explained it elsewhere, and if you really want to know more, I can definitely point you in that direction. Um, suffice it to say, Jesus is perfectly God. Jesus is perfectly man. This is not a contradiction. And if you don't like it, well, tough cookies, because it is super confusing and super irrational, it seems. But this is also, like, a cornerstone of Catholic doctrine. Um, importantly... Jesus is born perfect, Jesus is born God, he hangs out on earth for like 30 years, the last couple of years of which he spends going around teaching and healing people and doing all the cool stuff that you can read about in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, he multiplies some fishes, he walks on some water, he does other stuff, and then we kill him. Um, that's the other important thing to know about Jesus. He dies. He is killed for basically just being himself. Um, according to the gospel narratives, Jesus is tried because he claims to be God, which would be extremely blas blasphemous in Jewish society were he not actually God. Um, he is tried by the Jewish Sanhedrin, the like religious leaders of the time. He is handed over to Pontius Pilate, the representative of the Roman government who is currently in power. Pilate sentences him to death. Everybody is really excited about this, apparently. They kill him by crucifying him, nailing him to a cross. Um, but, surprise, turns out this was part of the plan all along. Apparently, God sent Jesus, the perfect God-man, to die, and that death actually is a sacrifice performed by God, using God, to save people from their sins. See, throughout the Jewish Old Testament, in order to overcome one's sinfulness, the only thing that you could do was sacrifice, like a perfect lamb or a perfect goat or a perfect ox or something. Um, and that would cover up your sin and make you good with God, temporarily. Next time you sin, you had to make another sacrifice. That's the way it works. There's tons of symbolism in the Old Testament to indicate this, as well as some really direct lines of, like, uh imperative sacrifice commands that God tells you this is how sin works. Jesus then is an upgraded sacrifice. Because he is sinless, like the perfect unblemished lamb, he serves as a sacrifice. Only because he is God, he is a perfect sacrifice that covers everyone's sin, not just one person's. So anyone who believes in Jesus is saved. That's the basic tenet of the gospel. When people quote passages at you, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel in a nutshell. 
man sucks, they are sinful, they broke all the rules, God is perfect, he can't hang out with humans anymore, but he sends Jesus to die as a sacrifice. So as a result, anyone who believes in Jesus and accepts the sacrifice as it was made is now square with God. They can be saved. Rather than going to hell and being tormented for an eternity, they can go to heaven and enjoy salvation and communion with God and Jesus for all time. This is the 10-minute version of the gospel, and I realize there's probably a lot of questions you have, and there's tons of theology that go into this, like halls worth of books have been written about this. I, we definitely do not have time to talk about it all here. What I want to emphasize here is them's the three rules, sinful humans, perfect God, mercy by way of Jesus' sacrifice. That's the only way to do salvation. And everyone in Christendom believes this. And by that I mean like everyone in Europe, everyone in the medieval period, with the exception of like other people outside of, you know, the European West, people who are like Muslims or Jews for the most part, as well as all the people who are, you know, in China or America or India or people places where Christianity isn't nearly as prominent, like every Christen, Christian in Christendom, everyone in Western culture at this moment in time, which is, you know, all the people we're studying right now, they all believe this. They all believe this so deeply that they don't care whether they live or die so long as they are square with Jesus, as long as they are square with God by way of Jesus. And this is how the Catholic Church runs the place. Like, they are the arbiters. Um, by their own testimony, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he passed the keeping of the keys to Peter, his main apostle. And Peter was the first pope. And Peter, the first pope, pa passed down the power to the second pope, who passed down to the third pope, and so on and so forth, in an unbroken line to whatever pope is running the show at the moment. Um, all of the popes claim their authority and power from Peter. Now that's a historical nightmare that we definitely don't have any time to talk about, whether or not that's legitimate or exactly what the theology is involved there. We'll talk about that to some degree next time when Martin Luther starts shaking everything up. Um, for our purposes, we need to know that in the medieval world, like everybody believes that this is true, that the Pope holds all the power over salvation, by way of this process of gospel sacrifice. Jesus dying to square God's justice with human sin. Good? If not, email me about it or, you know, whatever. Read up on it elsewhere. It's not like you... It's not like the internet isn't full of places that will be more than happy to tell you the way that the, you know, Christian theology works. Um, it's out there. By all means, look into it. Um... What's important for our purposes is where Dante falls into this whole category. Because Dante, on the one hand, is absolutely following the medieval perspective of like 100% allegiance to everything that I just talked about as far as like the Catholic Church's power and, you know, Jesus as Savior and the whole gospel message is passed down in the New Testament and Old Testament. But on the other hand, Dante is making some innovations here. Dante is changing the system just a little bit in a way that nobody has a problem with at this moment, but in a way that's going to become increasingly relevant for this class. Um, so let's dive into Dante, and let's first look at that first canto, Canto 1. 
when Dante is hanging out in the dark wood of error. And notice how Dante is framing this as a very paradigmatic Christian relationship. This is a commonly used symbol in medieval allegory, as well as we'll be seeing it all over the place elsewhere. Um, this dark wood very much represents the human soul struggling through sinfulness, trying to come to you know salvation and light. And notice how he describes it here. Like right at the beginning of Canto 1, midway in our life's journey, I went astray from the straight road and woke to find myself alone in a dark wood. How shall I say what wood that was? I never saw so drear, so rank, so arduous a wilderness. Its very memory gives a shape to fear. This is, again, a typical way of presenting the Christian struggle in earthly life. You are stranded in a dark wood without the light of God and Jesus to guide you. You are stranded in your sinfulness. You are lost. And notice how he stresses that he went astray from the straight road. That's a direct biblical allusion. According to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the way is narrow and the gate is straight that leads to salvation. And Dante says he has strayed from the straight path. He has gone away. He has lost himself. And now he can't find his way back. Now, notice, he says death could scarce be bitter, be more bitter than that place. Like, it, almost it would be better to die than to suffer hopeless in this lostness. But since it came to good, I will recount all that I found revealed there by God's grace. How I came to it, I cannot rightly say, so drugged and loose with sweep with sleep had I become when I first wandered there from the true way. But at the far end of that valley of evil whose maze had sapped me my very heart with fear, I found myself before a little hill and lifted up my eyes. Its shoulders glowed already with the sweet rays of that planet whose virtue leads men straight on every road, and the shining strengthened me against the fright whose agony had racked the lake of my heart through all the terrors of that piteous night. What he's describing here, and I realize he's using rather poetic language and that the Gutenberg file is possibly even more obtuse. Um, here he is wandering in this dark wood, doesn't know how he got off the path, but is now lost in sin, in selfishness. And yet here we come to this hill and on the shoulders of the hill, like on the top of the hill, he sees the sun shining. Here is his salvation. The sun is what he refers to as that planet whose virtue leads men straight on every road. Surprise, astronomy isn't terribly great at this point, so the comp comparison of sun to a planet isn't unheard of, although he may just very well be taking poetic license here as well. In either case, notice that the sun symbolizes the salvation. Now he sees the direction he's supposed to go in. in instead of this dark forest that is confusing and losing him now he sees the hill with the sun shining on it here is light here is the way that he is supposed to go but rather than immediately charge for it he is blocked like he goes towards it just as a swimmer who with his last breath flounders ashore from perilous seas might turn to memorize the wide water of his death so did i turn my soul still fugitive from death's surviving image to stare down that past that none had ever left alive but as soon as he gets there there's a problem and lo almost at the beginning of the rise i faced a spotted leopard 
all tremor and flow and gaudy pelt, and it would not pass, but stood so blocking my every turn that time and again I was on the verge of turning back to the wood. This fell at the first widening of the dawn as the sun was climbing Ares with those stars that rode with him to light the new creation. This is Trixie, so let's unpack it. First, we run into this leopard. And it is usually understood that the leopard symbolizes malice. That the leopard represents issues in Dante's world where people are antagonizing him, getting deliberately in his way, attacking him. Now, Dante wrote this while in exile, like he had been kicked out of Italy. It was kind of nuts in Italy at this point in time um, in the 14th century. It was very tumultuous in Italy, like many other places were way safer, um, largely because of the political infighting surrounding the papacy and all of the power that it wielded. Dante was a victim of that. There were people who were out to get him, in short, so he left. He went into exile, and it was Malice who drove him to this despair. Notice the way that that works. The leopard who stands in his way probably represents the people who were attacking him, the people who were antagonizing him. But notice that this little note about the, the sun climbing Aries with those stars this refers to some astrological details. When the sun is in Aries, it is the time of Easter. So it says, Thus the holy hour and the sweet season of commemoration did much to arm my fear of that bright murderous beast with their good omen, yet not so much but what I shook with dread at sight of a great lion that broke upon me, raging with hunger, its enormous head held high as if to strike a mortal terror into the very air, and down his track a she-wolf drove upon me, a starved horror ravening and wasted beyond all belief. Notice the situation here. Dante has come out of the forest of darkness and sin, he is lost, he has forsaken the straight path, he has wandered astray, but he sees the hill, there is his salvation, there is the possibility of getting out of his sin, and yet it is blocked. Um, even though it is Easter Sunday, even though it is the holy season of the year, he is blocked by malice on one hand, the lion on the other, the she-wolf on another side, and it's hopeless. There's no way that he can get there. He is assailed from all sides by people trying to destroy him. His salvation comes, strangely, from somewhere else. So he says, I died from every hope of that high summit, and like a miser, eager in acquisition, but desperate in self-reproach, when fortune's wheel turns to the hour of his lost, all tears and attrition, I wavered back, and still the beast pursued, forcing herself against me bit by bit, till I slid back into the sunless wood. He gives up hope, he despairs, he returns to the forest, because there's no way that he can make it to the top of that shining hill. And as I fell to my soul's ruin, a presence gathered before me on the discolored air, the figure of one who seemed hoarse from long silence. At sight of him in that friendless waste, I cried, Have pity on me, whatever thing you are, whether shade or living man. And it replied, Not man, though man I once was, and my blood was Lombard, both my parents Mantuan. I was born, though late, sub-Julio, and bred in Rome under Augustus in the noon of the false and lying gods. I was a poet, and sang of old Anchises' normal, noble son who came to Rome after the burning of Troy. This, if the cues aren't enough to clue you in, is Virgil. Who is Virgil, you ask? Virgil is the great Roman poet who wrote the 
Aeneid, largely considered by the medievals to be the greatest of the epic poems, even greater perhaps than Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey before Virgil. Virgil shows up here, and it is Virgil who is going to guide Dante through hell, through purgatory, and up to the gates of heaven, at which point he won't be able to come along. Like, he even mentions this. Um, if you check line, let's say, around uh, 105 um, in the first canto, as Dante is grilling him about this, Virgil explains, Therefore, for your own good, I think it well you follow me, and I will be your guide and lead you forth through an eternal place. There you shall see the ancient spirits tried in endless pain, and hear their lamentation as each bemoans the second death of souls. He's describing hell. Um, Dante is going to be led by Virgil through hell. He will get to see all of the souls in torment. Um, next, Virgil goes on, you shall see upon a burning mountain souls in fire and yet content in fire, knowing that whensoever it may be, they yet will mount into the blessed choir. So after they go through hell, Virgil is going to take him to purgatory. Now in the Catholic doctrine, which is not in the Protestant tradition. Again, there's so much history. We'll talk about some of this more. Um, in Catholic doctrine, purgatory is where souls that are dead go to get rid of their sins. Anyone who dies with sins on their conscience, which, you know, is everybody, like the, the priests frequently cannot, you know, forgive all sins before you ultimately die like some mortal sins have to be worked off if they can be worked off at all and other sins you just kind of collect because being a person requires sinning even at like even if you are absolved of your sins on your deathbed um purgatory is where you go to work them off and you got to work them off for a long time like decades centuries perhaps millennia um the popes frequently will offer opportunities to, like, lower your sentence in purgatory, but it is generally understood that, like, 99.9% .9 of Christians are going to spend some time in purgatory at the very least. So after they are going through hell, Virgil is going to tour purgatory with Dante, where all of the souls are in fire but content, because even if they are suffering, purgatory is finite it will eventually be over and when it is done they will go to heaven so as virgil goes on to which if it is still your wish to climb a worthier spirit shall be sent to guide you with her shall i leave you for the king of time who reigns on high forbids me to come there since living i rebelled against his law We'll come back to the whole issue of Virgil and why he can't exactly be allowed into heaven. What I want to stress at the moment is the orderliness of the situation. This is another hallmark of medieval philosophy and theology, and it is something that Dante traffics in a lot in this poem. Not just in the stuff that we read, but in the whole poem. Notice that Dante is talking about a tour of the entire cosmos as the Christians understand it. He's going to go all the way through hell, circle by circle, through all nine circles and 34 cantos. He's going to come into purgatory, and once again, he's going to go up through the nine circles of purgatory, all the way through 33 more cantos, and it's going to be nine circles of heaven, where he'll get closer and closer to the actual beatific vision itself, the vision of God, in another 33 cantos. And notice that the structure is so balanced. 
Notice that Dante uses the very numbers that he's working with to emphasize the divinity of the whole situation. See, in Catholic teaching, there are three persons of the Trinity. Like, the Trinity is the God that the Catholics worship. That is God the Father, God the Son, namely Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit, God indwelling in Christianity across the board. So the church, Jesus, and God form the three parts of this one God. And yeah, it's still one God. Again, that's Trinitarian doctrine. We can't really explain all of the details there. Suffice it to say, as most Trinitarian theologians will conclude, all three parts, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are themselves God, and the whole thing is also God. But notice that that number, three, that number which is so sacred to Christianity, which is so crucial to the very identity of who God is, Dante is playing with that number in everything that he's doing here. Notice that it is nine circles of hell, nine rings of purgatory, nine circles in heaven. Nine, of course, is three times three. It is the Trinity itself made into a Trinity. So the orderliness of the world is itself a feature of Dante's poetry. The whole world is like a giant perfect sphere or square. Um, it is three times three circles in three different planes, hell, purgatory, and heaven, which all compose the world together. So not only do you have, you know, three times three as the different circles, but times the three different parts, inferno, purgatorio, and paradiso. Um, so you have 27 total circles to come with, up with, three times three times three. What's more, look at the way that he records it. Now, it's a little strange because he's got 34 cantos in the Inferno, but each of the other texts, the Paradiso and the Purgatorio, have 33 cantos instead. Again, threes. Um, you have three and three next to one another in this case. Now, the Inferno is strange because it has the 34 instead of the 33, but remember this first chapter that we just sort of went over doesn't participate in this. The dark forest that uh, Dante is in when Virgil initially finds him isn't part of the tour. That's Earth. Like, that is his life on Earth. So it shouldn't count. Without that, you end up with 33 cantos to explore all of hell. So 33 cantos in hell, 33 cantos in paradise, 33 cantos in purgatory, and one canto on Earth add up to a perfect 100 cantos. Again, the squareness, the orderliness, the perfect round numbers, the multiples of three, all of these Dante is playing with to emphasize the divine orderliness of the universe. The structure of his poem reflects the structure of the cosmos as Dante and the Catholics see it. This is God's perfection rendered in poetry in a very real sense. And the medievals love this stuff. Um, you will find medieval poets and medieval writers frequently riffing on these threes and perfect tens and sevens like the days of the week all the time. 
The medievals love their world orderly and categorized. They love writing huge taxonomies of all of the strange things in the world and will frequently even like bend the rules of their taxonomy to fit those three categories or seven categories or ten categories to make that perfection even more explicit. For the medieval perspective, God did not make mistakes. Everything in the world is just as it should be. Even though humans have sinned and screwed things up, that is all part of God's plan. Part of God's plan to send Jesus to save us and also to sort of reveal his own perfection. And Dante is working with that plan. Dante is very much cooperating in that medieval project. The trouble here, and one of the things that the medievals are frequently wrestling with, that Dante is going to wrestle with as well, and that we're going to see a lot of our thinkers wrestle with in the future, is how to square all of that awesome godly perfection in Christian theology with the pagan teaching that is so respected as well. See, at this point in time, in the medieval period, the there is no science, like, it hasn't been invented yet. Um, people have been doing things that are comparable to science, like people have been practicing or dabbling with biology or taking notes on plants or you know, categorizing all the various animals that they run into. Lots of people will do that, but the foundation for their knowledge isn't so much biblical, like they'll use the Bible where it offers an opportunity, but the Bible really isn't interested in you know classification and taxonomy so much. Instead, they're going to look back to the great philosophers of thousands of years ago at this point. Um, Plato and Aristotle are the primary philosophical motivation for like all of this sort of speculation about the way the world works. Instead of science, these thinkers have philosophy. And honestly, like Aristotle was doing science in his day, like back in four or 500 BCE, Aristotle was cutting animals apart to see how they worked and talking about circulation and reproduction. Like he was doing protobiology, he was doing protophysics, um, he was doing protochemistry. He just considered it part of one grand project, which included metaphysics, like understanding the way the prime mover works. This was all the same thing for Aristotle. And to this point, nobody has topped Aristotle. The assumption that most of the philosophers and theologians and sort of quasi-scientists, even the alchemists, um, they are mostly interested not in like creating a new foundation for science, that's gonna come later, um, but instead working off of the notes of the people who have figured it out before. Plato and Aristotle are authoritative philosophers. Um, and they are highly regarded and respected. Now, for most of the medieval period, the medievals don't actually have the original Plato and Aristotle texts. They're working off notes of notes in many cases. They're working off, you know, various, like, other medieval philosophers who had read Plato and Aristotle, like St. Augustine of Hippo, or like the great Christian theologians who they have retained from the patristic period and that in early Christianity. Um, for the most part, the great Platonic and Aristotelian texts are gone, and nobody knows where to find them. Like, they were lost when the barbarians sacked Rome, and most of the libraries have been destroyed. Now, as it happens, the Islamicate world, like 
Muslims at this point in time, they have all those texts. They did not lose them. They were way better stewards of the great philosophical tradition than the Christians were. Um, like, the Pope and the monasteries have a couple of texts of Plato kicking around that they've copied a bunch of times because it's like a thousand years later. Um, but the Muslims, they have libraries packed with these things. Like Aristotle and Plato, they don't have all their texts. Many of those were lost before Islam was even a thing. Um, but where Islam conquered, they preserved the, the wisdom, the knowledge that they found. Um, and as a consequence, when the Christians start to reconquer Spain in the 11th and 12th centuries, one of the things they dig up is all of these old Aristotle texts. They find and rediscover a bunch of the ancient texts of Plato and Aristotle, and they start translating them. By the time that Dante is writing, this is pretty wildly available, like at least by medieval standards. Um, many monasteries have copies of Aristotle and Plato, or they have copies of people who have been writing about Aristotle and Plato. And new philosophical systems are springing out of the woodwork as a consequence. Like Aquinas is writing his big Summa Theologica um, as a way to sort of synthesize Aristotle and Christianity in the same way that Augustine, de like centuries ago, had tried to synthesize Plato in Christianity and achieved mostly success. Um, what this, the problem here though, is that everybody knows that Plato and Aristotle and most of these great philosophers of times past, along with poets like Virgil and Ovid who lived under ancient Rome, they were all pagans. And that's really awkward. Can you in fact square one's Christianity, one's belief in the great, you know, Christian teachings and the fact that all Christians are saved but all pagans are damned with the fact that Plato and Aristotle and Homer and Ovid and Virgil are awesome. This is a problem that a lot of medieval thinkers are trying to wrestle with and they're trying to find ways to solve this problem. And Dante's doing the same thing. In fact, it's a lot of what Dante is doing in these early cantos. So notice, this one is especially, like, tricksy, uh, but notice in Canto 2, right around line 15, Dante is having doubts. Like Virgil is saying, hey, we're going to go on this great tour. Let's go check out all of hell and all of purgatory, and then you can go visit heaven, although I can't help you there. We'll still come back to that. Um, Dante's like, dude, why me? What have I done to deserve such awesomeness? Why would you take me under your wing? Um, so he says, and this is right around line 10 in Canto 2, Thus I began, Poet, you who must guide me before you trust me to that arduous passage, look to me and look through me, can I be worthy? You sang how the father of Silvius, while still in corruptible flesh, won to that other world, crossing with mortal sense the immortal sill. Who he's referring to here is Aeneas. Virgil in the Aeneid describes how Aeneas at one point travels into Hades and visits the souls of people that he encounters along the way. Dante is referring to this. He is saying that, Virgil, you described a trip like this. You described how Aeneas went on a trip like this. Why would I also get a trip like this? So the father of Silvius, while still in corruptible flesh, wandered that other world, crossing with mortal sense the immortal sill. But if the adversary of all evil, weighing his consequence and who and what should issue from him, treated him so well, that cannot seem unfitting to thinking men. 
since he was chosen father of Mother Rome and of her empire by God's will and token. The question that he's then facing is, okay, so Aeneas got to go on this trip, and Aeneas was a pagan. Aeneas didn't believe in Jesus. Like me, he was a sinner through and through. Unlike me, he was born before Christ, so he couldn't possibly have known him. So as a result, there's no possible way for him to be a Christian, whereas I have just failed in my Christianity. But even so, Aeneas was the chosen father of Mother Rome and of her empire by God's will and token. Both, to speak strictly, were founded and foreknown as the established seat of holiness for the successors of great Peter's throne. In that quest which your verses celebrate, he learned those mysteries from which arose his victory and Rome's apostolate. What he's saying is Aeneas may have been a pagan, but he was also a major part of God's plan. He is the guy who founded Rome. That's the whole point of the Aeneid. Like the entire Aeneid is just a story of like, here is Aeneas being driven out of Troy, ultimately coming to found Rome, the great city, the most important city in the world for Virgil, because, you know, he's a Roman, but also for Dante, the seat of the papacy. Rome is not just a pagan city, it is a holy Christian city. It is a city founded with God's permission by God's chosen discoverer, Aeneas, in order to set the stage for the chosen vessel, Paul, bearing the confirmation of that faith, which is the one true door to life eternal. This is the seat of Peter. This is the place that Paul spoke to. Rome has a huge role in the sacred plan and Aeneas is part of that sacred plan. So when Dante says, why me? He compares himself to a pagan, but a pagan who is thoroughly incorporated into this plan. Dante doesn't have that kind of notoriety. He's not important. He didn't found the holy city of Rome. He did not build the city that would ultimately be the place where the papacy would reside. This is not he does not deserve this trip the way that Aeneas got to enjoy the trip through heaven, hell, etc. Aeneas got to see the underworld because he was special. Dante is not. But notice the assumption there. Notice that Dante, who is himself, you know, a practicing Christian, despite his, you know, claims that he is wandering through sinfulness, and indeed he's talking about, you know, his own past, his own struggle to, like, be a believer... Um, he is also stressing that pagans can have a role in the divine plan. This is part of the, you know, his reconciliation of pagan and Christian culture. Notice too that it's Virgil who's going on the trip with him. Virgil is the great Roman poet. He was himself a pagan, and yet he is initiated into these secrets because he is somehow still significant. He told the story of Aeneas, who was the founder of the holy city of Rome. Virgil, by celebrating Aeneas, is also complicit in God's plan. He also gets a special role. Notice how this is ultimately squared, though. Um, if you look in Canto 4, this is where they visit Limbo, the first circle of hell. And you'll notice the people aren't typically all that miserable in Limbo. Um, in Limbo, we find not a whole bunch of suffering, tormented souls being, like, devoured alive by flame or whatever. Instead, 
the view is rather different. Um, so if we look at the text right around, doo -doo 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 -doo, let's check, let's dive in around line 20. Um, Virgil says, the pain of these below us here drains the color from my face for pity and leaves this pallor you mistake for fear. He's referring to everyone that they encountered before this and the, the vestibule of hell where all the opportunists are wandering around because they didn't align with either good or evil, um, where all the angels who decided not to follow either Lucifer or God ended up outcast by both. Now let us go, for a long road awaits us. So he entered, and so he led me into the first circle and ledge of the abyss. No tortured wailing rose to greet us here, but sounds of sighing rose from every side, sending a tremor through the timeless air. A grief breathed out of untormented sadness, the passive state of those who dwell apart, men, women, children, a dim and endless congress. And the master said to me, you do not question what souls these are that suffer here before you. I wish you to know before you travel on that these were sinless and still their merits fail for they lacked baptism's grace, which is the door of the true faith you were born to. Their birth fell before the age of the Christian mysteries and so they did not worship God's Trinity in fullest duty. I am one of those. For such defects are we lost, though spared the fire and suffering hell in one affliction only, that without hope we live on in desire. Notice that when they first entered hell, when they first like entered the vestibule, over the gate are the famous words, only abandon all hope ye who enter here. When you are in hell, there is no hope for you, according to the Christian theology. If you are damned, that's it. You will spend eternity in hell. Um, there is no possibility of salvation. The reason why the torment of purgatory is bearable is because at the end of the day, everyone knows they're going to make it to heaven. It's just a little while. And, you know, even millennia is just a little while before an eternity spent in heaven. By contrast, anyone stuck in hell is eternally forbidden to go to heaven. Virgil, no matter how good he was, will never make it there. Even if he can carry Dante all the way up through purgatory, he is not permitted to pass the, the barrier. He will never go to heaven. Um, so all of these virtuous heathens are not tormented. They are not actively suffering, but they will never experience true bliss. They suffer not from pain, but from hopelessness. They live on in desire, so to speak. Um, now there are exceptions to this. We get a list. Um, he took from us the shade of our first parent of Abel, his pure son, of ancient Noah, of Moses, the bringer of law, the obedient, Father Abraham, David the king, Israel with his father and his children, Rachel the holy vessel of his blessing, and many more he chose for elevation among the elect. Notice that the list is limited to major Jewish figures in the Old Testament. They also lived before Jesus and therefore should theoretically be excluded from heaven by Christian theology, but they get a pass because they all anticipate God's plan in some way. They all had an insight into what was going on, even if it wasn't exactly belief itself, not baptism, not actual Christian faith. They saw Christianity before it was cool, in short, before it was a thing that existed, and so they get saved. But that's it. 
Um, there are a whole bunch of pagans, though, in Limbo. The virtuous uh, pagans. All of these people who, like Virgil, didn't commit sin and therefore aren't tormented, aren't suffering, but because they did not follow Jesus, they don't get to go to heaven. They still have to reside in hell. Now, the best of these, you'll notice, they're crowded around this light, the light of reason. Um, so it says right around line 70-ish, we were still some difference some distance back in the long night, and yet near enough that I half saw, half sensed what quality of souls lived in that light. O ornament of wisdom and of art, what souls are these whose merit lights their way even in hell? What joy sets them apart? And Virgil to me, the signature of honor they left on earth is recognized in heaven and wins them ease in hell out of God's favor. And as he spoke, a voice rang on the air, Honor the Prince of Poets, the soul and glory that went from us returns. He is here, he is here. They are greeting Virgil again as one of the people who reside here in limbo next to the light of virtue. The other poets who hang out with him are Homer, of course, Ilion the Odyssey, Horace the Satirist, who gets special treatment, Ovid, the other great Roman poet from roughly around the same time as Virgil, and Lucan, who came a little bit down the pike later. These four, along with Dante, who they count as one of them, which honestly is a little bit proud on Dante's part, um, as well as Virgil, make the six great poets who get to hang out in limbo together. They count him as an equal. But even as they go on, you'll find even more great pagans. You'll find Electra and Hector and Aeneas and Caesar, great figures of ancient Greek and Roman history and mythology. You will see Camilla and the Queen Amazon. You will see the Latian king, the good Brutus, Lucrezia, Julia, Marcia, and Cornelia, and Saladin, who we'll come back to. Raising my eyes a little, I saw on high Aristotle, the master of those who know, ringed by the great souls of philosophy, all wait upon him for their honor and his. I saw Socrates and Plato at his side before all others there. Democritus, who ascribes the world to chance, Diogenes, and with him there Thales, Anaxagoras, Zeno, Heraclitus, and Pedocles. And I saw the wise collector and analyst Dioscorides, Orpheus, Tully, Linny, Linus, Seneca, Euclid, Ptolemy, Hippocrates, Galen, Avicenna, and Averroes, who we'll come back to. Most of these, with the exception of Avicenna, Averroes, and Saladin, are great Greek thinkers. They are the great Greek heroes, they are the great Greek philosophers, they are the great Greek and Roman thinkers who, by the light of reason, can still see and still have virtue and some kind of peace in this pagan destruction, in this hell. They, despite the fact that they weren't believers, still get primacy of place in hell and are not tormented for that reason. Notice how Dante is making this statement about the relationship between pagan and Christian thinking, philosophy, and theology here. He is saying that paganism, yep, they're all damned. Every last one of them, no exceptions. But they still get like some kind of peace in the afterlife. They are not tormented actively because their virtue acts as a light. God recognizes that they were good men, even though they were, at the end of the day, sinners damned to hell. Their virtue ultimately saves them from greater torments. Now, the exceptions, Saladin, Avicenna, and Averroes, these three are all really important 
Muslim thinkers, heroes, and scholars. Saladin was the great antagonist of, I believe, the Third Crusade, who was famously noble and famously generous to captives and to captured Christians. He was way better than all the crusaders who showed up during that fight, and he is recognized by Dante here for being a good man, even though he doesn't follow Jesus. Um, Averroes and Avicenna are great Muslim scholars. They are the commentator um, and the philosopher in Aquinas's uh, words. Not the philosopher, the commentator, I forget the other one. Um, these two thinkers were instrumental in like interpreting Aristotle in a way that Christians could then sort of adopt and understand. They were also illuminated by their rationality, by their philosophy. So Dante groups them along with the pagans here, which I find kind of interesting and really surprisingly like forward thinking for, for Dante in the 13th century. The point here is that paganism has a place. It is not equal. It does not hang out on the same level as the great Christian poets and philosophers. Like you'll notice that Augustine is not listed here. That is because he is hanging out in heaven, of course, um, as well as, you know, all the great like Christian thinkers of the medieval period, Boethius and uh, Anselm and so on. Um, we will meet them in heaven, but not here. But notice that he makes an exception for these guys. Despite the fact that they did not believe in Christ, despite the fact that they were not Christians, even Muslims who lived after Christ can achieve limbo, can achieve some kind of peace in this dark, hellish world. Um, keep this in mind because we're going to see other ways to reconcile or not reconcile Christianity with paganism in a lot of the other texts that we're going to read. The fact of the matter is, a lot of these thinkers really respect the work of Plato and Aristotle and Homer and Virgil and Ovid and all of the great pagan thinkers, and they have to somehow square that with the fact that they weren't Christians. Their religion tells them these people are damned. Their intuition tells them these people were awesome, and this is how they fix that. Plato gets to hang out in heaven. Well, not in heaven. Plato gets to hang out in limbo for Dante. Um, Aristotle and Homer and all of the great poets, by their virtue, achieve something resembling salvation. Something less than salvation, but greater than damnation and torment. But now I want to move on to the next section that I had you read in Dante. Um, rather than sticking around in these four first cantos, I want to talk about Satan um, in Canto 34, we finally meet Satan, Dis, the devil himself. Um, and admittedly, we skipped like 30 cantos to get here, but, you know, we can't read everything in this class. Um, it's a shame because there's a lot of cool stuff in there, but it's also less important for our class purposes, I want to say. Um, but I did absolutely want to include the bit about Satan. Um, so let's just start straight in by talking about Satan and what he looks like. So Virgil brings him into the can into the, the last center of hell um, in Canto 34. And in line 20, he says, Now see the face of Dis. This is the place where you must arm your soul against all dread. 
Do not ask, reader, how my blood ran cold and my voice choked up with fear. I cannot write it. This is a terror that cannot be told. I did not die, and yet I lost life's breath. Imagine for yourself what I became, deprived at once of both my life and death. The emperor of the universe of pain jutted his upper chest above the ice, and I am closer in size to the great mountain the titans make around the central pit than they to his arms. First... Let's talk size. This description that Dante is closer in size to the huge mountain that is in Tartaros that the Titans built than the, than the Titans themselves are compared to Satan indicates that this is, like, enormous. Satan is mountains upon mountains tall. He is taller than the distance from the top of, the, of Mount Everest to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Like, he is enormous. So large that it's almost difficult to imagine him actually being in the center of the world the way that Dante understands hell to be laid out. Like, all of this is underground in some way. Um, he is enormous, like unimaginably enormous, unfathomably enormous. And now, start, starting from this part, imagine the whole that corresponds to it. If he was once as beautiful as now he is hideous and still turned on his maker, well may he be the source of every woe. With what a sense of awe I saw his head towering above me, for it had three faces. One was in front, and it was fiery red. The other two, as weirdly wonderful, merged with it from the middle of each shoulder to the point where all converged at the top of the skull. The right was something between white and bile. The left was about the color that one finds on those who live along the banks of the Nile. Under each head two wings rose terribly their span proportioned to so gross a bird i never saw such sails upon the sea they were not feathers their texture and their form were like bats wings and he beat them so that three winds blew from him in one great storm it is these winds that freeze all cockatus satan is enormous he's got these three monstrous heads that dante a little bit racistly uh tries to like paint his awful colors and under each head there's wings and the wings beat so hard that they freeze the lake of ice surrounding satan in this deepest level of hell but notice too the way that dante describes his demeanor he, if he was once as beautiful as now he is hideous and still turned on his maker well may he be the source of every woe he adds here, and around line 53, he wept from his six eyes, and down three chins the tears ran mixed with bloody froth and pus. He is suffering. Now, in the Christian understanding of the way that evil works, Satan was not like the anti-God. Like, it's not like we imagine frequently in our contemporary world where it's like good and evil or like light and dark side of the force. It's not Jedi versus Sith. Like, the way that the medievals perceived good and evil, good represented God. God is everything that is in the world. Um, for Aquinas, God literally represents existence himself. Um, and existence, insofar as it is existence, is always good. Nothing, insofar as it exists, is bad. Goodness is the bright center of the universe. Evil isn't like the opposite force that is equally powerful trying to destroy it. Evil is departure from goodness. It is the absence of goodness. 
for the medievals, goodness is positive in the sense that a positive number is positive. Evil is negative in the sense that an absence is negative. It is empty. It is meaningless. It is void. Um, it is not a separate force. It's not a choice between good and evil. It's a choice to do good and the alternative to doing good. The not doing good is evil. So notice that Satan in this light is the guy who turned away from God and he regrets it. Notice the depiction here of him once being beautiful, but now reduced to this horror and misery. Notice him weeping from all of his eyes and suffering as the tears mix with the pus and blood on his chest. He is suffering in this situation and he knows that he is suffering in this situation. He weeps for what he has lost. He too is damned. This is not a case of like Satan's going to rile up his army and they're going to like take on God. This is a resigned Satan, a Satan that has given up all hope the same way that the name above the door said, abandon all hope ye who enter here. Satan knows he doesn't have a chance. Um, Satan knows that if there is war against God, he will lose inevitably. And the only reason to even purpose like perpetuate such a war is just pure spite at this point he doesn't have a cause he is a lack of a cause he doesn't have some goal to accomplish he has already left all goals behind that's what evil is now of course dante does not stint on showing us the greatest sinners suffering by being eternally devoured and gnawed to death by satan of course judas iscariot the betrayer of jesus is head first into the central mouth while brutus and cassius the betrayers of caesar are devoured feet first so they're like heads are sticking out um, notice that Judas, of course, gets the worst punishment ever because he is the greatest sinner ever and his sin was the greatest sin ever. Um, like, this is pretty typical, honestly. Like, all the medievals hate the crap out of Judas and Cassius and Brutus um, and betrayers are universally loathed. Um, notice, though, that, again, all of this is tragic in a sense. This is what Dante experienced when he strayed from the narrow path. And again, think of that image in terms of this good and evil. That good is staying on the path, following it to its conclusion, seeking God in all things, whereas departure is evil. Evil as negative, evil as everything besides following God. Um, but notice too the way that this evil is depicted here. Because we're going to see Satan and evil and demons portrayed in a variety of different ways across this class. Like, this is the single most important theme, I suspect, to what, like, I'm going to present to you in, as, insofar as all these texts are concerned. Satan is enormous, unfathomably enormous. He is incredibly powerful to the point that he's freezing the lake of his own tears with the beat of his own wings. And yet... He is sad. He is tragic. He is lost. He is hopeless. He is in the most profound despair. That's what evil is to Dante. Despair. Complete hopelessness. Complete separation from God. 
that's what causes you to become evil. That's what causes you to become tragic, in a sense. Um, like, there are tragic figures who are, you know, heroic in their own right, and they're doing great things, and it doesn't work out for whatever reason, and those are tragic for a different reason. But it is sad that Satan cannot enjoy heaven, that all of these sinners cannot enjoy heaven. Yes, they should be punished, absolutely. Judas should absolutely just suffer being chewed on forever. That's just, in the sense that God is just. It is only appropriate that these people suffer. And yet, Dante feels for them. Dante is merciful. This is itself rather medieval. Like, this is not totally new to Dante and to the Renaissance. Like, there are lots of medieval theologians who see it the same way. This is pretty typical. What is atypical is the way that Dante frames his own salvation, his own coming around, his own return to the straight and narrow path. Because remember, like, back in Canto Two, in addition, we were talking about, like, Dante's doubts. He was, his misgivings. He was like, why did you pick me? Why did you, why did Aeneas, who was awesome, get all of that good stuff? You know, that makes sense to me, but why would you then give that same, you know, dignity? Why would you give that same privilege to me, who has accomplished nothing? And the answer is, surprisingly, it has nothing to do with Dante. It has everything to do with Beatrice. So back in line, let's say, 50 in Canto 2, Virgil tells him, To free you of this dread, I will tell you all of why I came to you and what I heard when first I pitied you. I was a soul among the souls of Limbo, as we know. When a lady so blessed and so beautiful, I prayed her to order and command my will called to me. Her eyes were kindled from the lamps of heaven. Her voice reached through me, tender, sweet, and low, an angel's voice, a music of its own. O gracious Mantuan, she says, whose melodies live in earth's memory and shall live on till the last motion ceases in the skies, my dearest friend and fortune's foe has strayed onto a friendless shore and stands beset by such distresses that he turns afraid from the true way, and news of him in heaven rumors my dread he is already lost. I come, afraid that I am too late arisen. Fly to him, and with your high counsel, pity, and with whatever need be for his good and soul salvation, help him and solace me. It is I, Beatrice, who send you to him. I come from the blessed height for which I yearn. Love called me here. When amid seraphim I stand again before my Lord, your praises shall sound in heaven. She paused, and I began, O lady of that only grace that raises feeble mankind within its mortal cycle above all other works God's will has placed within the heaven of the smallest circle, so welcome is your command that to my sense were it already fulfilled, it would yet seem tardy. I understand and am all obedience. Virgil is sent to Dante, not by God, but by Beatrice. Now, this requires a little bit of context. Dante had fallen madly in love with Beatrice, this woman that he had met. Honestly, probably more of a girl by my, our estimation, but let's leave that one for the moment. He fell in love with Beatrice. Beatrice meant the world to him. He was willing to give his entire life for her, and she died, tragically. Like, an illness took her away. And Dante was gutted. 
Like, forget all the horrible political stuff that happens to him. Forget the exile. Forget the malice. Forget those horrible leopards and lions and she-wolves that are, you know, snapping at his heels symbolically, whatever they represent literally. Dante was gutted by Beatrice's death. Beatrice to Dante represented everything good about the world. And she still does. Notice that in this poem, Beatrice, she goes to marry the queen of heaven, like the woman who is in charge of all of the women of heaven, to the other great Catholic saint women who represent all that is good about womanhood. And she petitions for love the salvation of Dante's soul. She leaves heaven, all of salvation, to which she yearns, she says, to talk Virgil into bringing Dante through this tour, through hell, through purgatory, up to paradise, where Beatrice is going to be the guide. Like, spoiler alert, in the Paradiso, Virgil takes off because he's not allowed in heaven, and Beatrice is going to be the one to walk Dante through heaven itself. It is love that saves Dante. It is Beatrice's love for Dante and Dante's love for Beatrice. Beatrice's love for Dante is what compels her to leave heaven itself to save him, and it is Dante's love for Beatrice that ultimately reforms him. It is Beatrice who is the compelling factor here. Love can save, is what Dante is telling us. This is new. Like, it's not that new. It's not a huge departure from Christian teaching. Like, God is love in Christian teaching, in the sense of charity, in the sense of, like, agape, the Greek word for selfless love. That's always been canon. That's always been the case. God is love. God saves. Therefore, love saves. Like, pretty straightforward. But this isn't just love in the sense of godly agape love. This definitely smacks of romantic love. Dante was in love with Beatrice as a woman as much as he was in love with her as a virtuous person. And as a consequence, Dante is setting the stage for a very Renaissance idea that love, romantic love and love in the sort of physical, like fleshly sense, can be on par if not the same thing as love in the divine sense. Dante's love for Beatrice and Beatrice's love for Dante is what saves Dante. It transcends heaven and earth. It transcends hell and heaven. Beatrice is willing to forsake the heaven that she has been enjoying, the eternity of bliss, because without Dante, she is unhappy. And Dante, trapped in sin, is saved from his sin by love by Beatrice. Love, therefore, can transcend this divine cosmic order, this perfection of the world. It is somehow more powerful. And that's something that is worth thinking about. That's something that we should pause at. That's something very unusual in the medieval worldview. Romantic love has usually been perceived by the medievals as being wrong, base, Aquinas famously was locked in a tower with a prostitute by his family because they were hoping to pervert him from following the, the monastic life. And Aquinas leapt to the fireplace, 
grabbed a poker and said, get behind me, Satan, as he apparently terrified this poor prostitute. This was the way that love was perceived in the medieval world a lot of the time. It was a temptation away from God. But Dante presents it as the only way in. And the Renaissance is going to love this idea. They're going to run with this idea. And we are going to hear it echoed a lot. Love and goodness are very thoroughly aligned in the modern perspective. Not love in the cosmic sense, in the, you know, platonic God in the universe sense, but love in the personal, individualistic sense. My love for someone else can save me, according to Dante. It can get me into heaven. That's potent writing. It's a potent idea. And it's going to flower incredibly over the next few hundred years. To the point that now you probably think it's sweet. Like, this is pretty normal that we hear love conquers all. Or that love stories are at the center of the way that we understand literature. And, you know, like a happy ending is achieved when finally the guy and girl get together. Or whatever the case may be. We're all aping Dante to some degree. Like... Dante was writing the first romantic comedy, although admittedly they went to hell in this one. So, you know, kind of nuts on that level. Um, but keep this in mind. This is one of those assumptions that you probably take 100% for granted in art and literature. Dante's kind of pioneering it here. Like, it's not the first time this story has been told. He's definitely borrowing from pagan thinkers, but this is very much a turning point. Um, and things are going to get more of this from here. Um, so for next time, we're going to switch gears. Uh, rather than having a deep reading, we're going to talk about the Renaissance and the Reformation. I'm going to have a video set up for you. Um, so find it via the Canvas page or look for it on my YouTube page or whatever I end up setting up for this. Um, we will talk about the Renaissance and Renaissance artwork, Renaissance ideology, and how that transitions into the Protestant Reformation and how everything is going to change as a consequence of this as Catholicism starts running for cover. Um, it should be a good time. So in the meantime, watch the videos that I've provided for you. Go check out the videos on Michelangelo and Raphael on Khan Academy. Um, go check out the video on the Reformation by Crash Course. Um, and we will go into much better detail next time in the next lecture. So, you know, tomorrow or whenever you listen to it. <laughs>